Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you this, this uh, morning, this wonderful morning of being together, studying your word together, listening to the word preached fantastically together. Lord, we just praise you that we have that wonderful privilege. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful rainbow this morning. We thank you for the fact that that reminds us that you're always with us. Lord, we praise you that we have your word, that we can study it, we can learn of you, we can actually grow, grow closer to you through your word. We can actually apply what we hear to our own individual lives so that we can be, live better lives, to be more like Jesus. So, Lord, be with us as we study this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, two things before we get, well, actually one thing before we get started. Guys, do something for me. Turn to Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Real short book. One of the minor prophets, as you well know. It's right after Habakkuk and right before uh, Haggai. And I want to read you, go to chapter 2. And I think this is really interesting. It's pointed out with, by Gary Stearman, who's, who's uh, head of Prophecy Watchers. If you haven't followed him, you should. Really good prophecy people. But he pointed this out in the latest magazine, Prophecy Watchers. And I'll start at verse 3. I just I want you to see what this refers to and what it might. I just, I'm not going to tell you anything else about it, but I want you to comment to me as we read it what you think this applies to. Zephaniah 2, 3. 2, 3. Seek the Lord. And I'm reading from the Amplified. Inquire of him, require him. It says, all you humble of the land who have acted in compliance with his revealed will and have kept his commandments. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be so that it may be you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Good stuff, good stuff for us. Now listen, verse four. Four, hear the fate of the Philistines. Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. The people of Ashdod shall be driven out at noonday and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Carathites, that's Philistines. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And the seacoast shall be pastures with, with dwell, deserted dwelling places and caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall pasture their flocks upon it. In the houses of deserted Philistine, Ashkelon, shall, they shall of Judah lie down in the evening for the Lord, their, their God, shall visit them and restore them from their captivity. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, by which they have reproached my people and magnified themselves and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and wild vetches and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people shall make a prey of them, and what is left of my nation shall possess them. This shall they have for their pride, because they have taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrible to them, for he will make them make lean and famish all the gods of the earth. Little g, the men shall worship God, everyone from his place, even all the isles and coastlands of the nations. Now, what does that make you think of? Isn't that interesting? 
And who was bring, wants to bring up Moab and the Ammonites? Well, Moab and the Ammonites occupy the nation of Jordan and Syria. What's happening right now in Syria? Syria is involved in what? What's going on with Hezbollah, which is southern Lebanon, that's also right next door to where the Moabites are. So it just, it just apparently they didn't learn a lesson in the past. Now this is applying, applying to, to us today. Don't you think? I do. I think that's fascinating. Now, the other thing I want to mention to you, did you hear that Iran bombed Pakistan? Did you hear that? Yes, they did. Now, why? I don't have any idea. I didn't dig into it to find out the reason why, but they, they attacked Pakistan. Now, you talk about stupid. One of, the, one of the premier nuclear power countries in the world is Pakistan. So, you know what went through my mind? Jeremiah 49. I always thought Israel would maybe bomb Elam and destroy all of the nuclear capability of Iran. That's what Jeremiah 49 talks about. Pakistan could do it. God didn't say who'd do it. So now Israel might do it. Now Pakistan might do it. They could wipe out all of Elam with one nuclear weapon. And they're next door. Pakistan is immediately to the, to the east of Iran. How stupid was it to attack them? It's just so dumb. I don't understand why they do things like that. But anyway, just thought I'd bring those things up to you. I thought they were interesting. Okay, we are in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. Let's read it. Again, reading from the Amplified. Because of faith, Enoch was caught up and transferred to heaven so that he did not have a glimpse of death. And he was not found because God had translated him. For even before he was taken to heaven, he received testimony that he had pleased and been satisfactory to God. But without faith, it's impossible to please and be satisfactory to God. For whoever would come near to God must necessarily believe that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly and diligently seek him. So the second hero of the faith in chapter 11 is Enoch. Now, when did Enoch live? Before the flood. He was, uh, I think, the seventh generation from Adam. His son, by the way, was Methuselah. And why do we know about Methuselah? Well, Methuselah's name actually means after I die, the judgment comes. Basically, it's what Methuselah means, which means he lived 969 years, and then the flood, then the flood came. That's what happened. But Enoch was his father. Enoch was 60. We'll read, we'll read this in a minute, when he had Methuselah. So you see, we're within a 1,000 years of Enoch's life, we're a 1,000 years of Noah's flood, where all breathing things were wiped out. Now, we go back to what we studied last week. Abel had faith in God, and he exemplified that faith by worshiping God in the correct manner, right? He did it the way God wanted. Cain did not, so therefore he killed his brother, and he was condemned and, and cursed. We all know that God never intends works to be anything for salvation. We know that, and that's what Cain was trying to do. We also know that uh, Enoch believed, of course he did, he actually had, he worshiped God, but he learned something else. And this is the, I hate to, I, nowadays I hate it when you have a word that you can't use properly, progressive. 
When you think of the word progressive, you think of the liberal and the, and the Democrat. No, no, no. Sequential teaching. God teaches in sequence, okay? So he started out with Abel teaching him to worship properly. Now he comes to, to Enoch teaching him to walk correctly, right? That means all aspects of your life. Abel worshiped God when he didn't worship God. He did it in the correct way. Did he really walk with God? Well, we really don't know because we don't know much about Abel. He died, obviously got killed by his brother. But we do know that Enoch came along and he walked with God, meaning he knew how to act God. And what did it say in the Bible? He was pleasing and satisfactory to God. Don't you want to be pleasing and satisfactory to God? Well, I do. So let's see what that means. We know that works are results of salvation, not the way of salvation. We know that for sure. Let's go to Genesis 5 and read about Enoch, all we know about him from Genesis. Genesis chapter 5. It starts in verse 21. It says, when Enoch was 65 years old, now remember, 65 years old at the time before the flood, he was a teenager, basically, right? Because how, how, how many years were people living? Well, Adam lived 930, Methuselah 969. So you see, people lived a long time, right? Do you believe that? Yeah. Well, you should. The Bible says so, yeah. Also, you have to remember, too, so the genetic code, the, our, the genes back then were perfect. There had been no deterioration of the genetic code, see, from anybody at that time. Also, the atmospheric conditions were different before the flood. It was more congenial to longer life, okay? So we get, well, I believe, every single one of these. And that's how we date the flood when it actually happened from creation to the flood is 1,656 years. We get that from this chapter. Anyway, it says, Enoch was 65 years old. Methuselah was born. Enoch walked in habitual fellowship with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked in continual fellowship with God, and he was not, for God took him. In other words, he raptured him. Isn't that cool? We'll talk more about that little rapture there. That's kind of neat. So what do we learn from this? We can understand better because God is revealing himself slowly and surely through number one with Abel. Now with Enoch, he's telling us how we actually can please him, how we're supposed to be doing what he wants. You know, Abel received a little bit of revelation. Enoch received a little bit more and we've received most, most of anybody because we have the whole scripture to go back on now. They did not, they did not have that. Um, Adam and Eve forfeited fellowship by sinning and got kicked out of the garden. But uh, Enoch pleased God. Now, how did he do that? Well, we've got five things that he did in these verses and an additional couple of verses I'll read to you in a minute. Number one, Enoch believed that God is. He exists, number one. Number two, he sought out God's reward. Wow, should we think that way? Apparently we should. Pay attention. He walked with God. He preached about God. Now, that's not here, but it's elsewhere. I'll show you that. And he entered into God's presence. So those are the things that we want to follow. Don't we, want to, we know that God exists. He is, right? I don't care what anybody thinks. He is. Number two, we want to walk with God. We want to do what his will is in our life. Yes. Number two, uh, three, we want to seek his reward. Do we want his reward? Well, sure we do. We want to hear that 
Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what we all want to hear, right? Number four, he preached for God. We all should do that. Everybody should be doing that. We all should preach for God. I don't mean preaching like Pastor Mac did such a wonderful job this morning. Uh, but what I'm doing, what you do every day, talking about Jesus, that's, that's prophesying. That's prophesying God's word, and that's what we all should be doing. And the last thing is entering into God's presence. Yes, at death, certainly, instantly, but also at the rapture. Enoch is a perfect picture of the church being raptured. If you walk with God, you please God, you get raptured. Okay? Of course, we're all going to be raptured whether we're dead or alive. <laughs> so God's promise, you will be raptured. Definitely, you will be raptured. I just want to go when I'm alive, Lord, please. <laughs> so the very first one, Enoch, believe that God is. We get that from verse 6. It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please God and be satisfied or satisfactory to him. He says, for whoever will come to God must believe that God exists. Well, okay, that's fine. Uh, did you know that Romans 1 tells us something very, very plainly that everybody knows God exists? Romans chapter, chapter 1 says, For that which is known about God is evident to them, made plain in their inner consciousness, because God himself has shown it to them. For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes, that is, his eternal power and divinity, have been made intelligible and clearly discernible, in and through the things that have been made. So men are without excuse, altogether without defense or justification. Then it says, because when they knew and recognized him as the God, they did not honor and glorify him as God or give him thanks, but instead they became futile and godless in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. What do we, do we see that? Everywhere. So faith is only the beginning of pleasing God. You've got to have that first. Religion does not please God. That, that would strike some people funny. Maybe nobody in this room, but it would a lot of other people. Religion does not please God because religion or acting religiously is basically a system developed by Satan to counterfeit the truth. So what am I saying by that? Heritage doesn't save you. You're descendant of Abraham. Does that save the Jews? Nationality doesn't save you. You're a descendant of anybody, and you're Jewish. If you're descendant of people who are believers in Christ, does that make you a Christian? Does that make you a believer? Not necessarily, no. How about uh, God works only through people who believe that he is and those who want to follow him and understand what he says, okay? So I want to read you from Galatians. Chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. It says, For there is now no distinction, no, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is not male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ or in him, then you are Abraham's offering and heirs according to promise. In other words, we are children of Abraham because of his faith. It has nothing to do with heritage. Okay, now, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 3.20. Now, it's a little bit different place in Romans, but it's still a good place to see. What does it say there? It says in Romans 3.20, 
For no person will be justified. No person will be made righteous. No person will be saved. In other words, acquitted, judged, acceptable in God's sight by observing the works prescribed by the law. For the real function of the law is to make men recognize and be conscious of sin, not just perception, but an acquaintance with sin, which works toward repentance, faith, and holy character. That's the Amplified. That's what the words really mean. So, believing that the only true God exists is fine. Demons know that. But we have to start the salvation process. And the way we do that is just believing that he is, but then we also want to have faith in him that he is God, and we need to follow him. His will dominates ours. So we give all of our desire to him. Of course, we all desire to know God, and it would really be great if we could see him, which can't. God tells us you can't see him. No one's ever seen God. That's in John, by the way, if you want to write that down, John 118. If I turn to that and just read it to you, it's a real simple verse. It says, no man has ever seen God at any time. The only unique son, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father. God, the father has declared Jesus. He has declared him. He has revealed him, brought him out where he can be seen. He has interpreted him and he has made him known. So we know that Jesus really exists. He does exist. He has existed as a man. We can't see him anymore. Now, God gives us evidence, though, of himself in all kinds of ways. Other than seeing him. We see him in so many different ways. We can't prove God's existence by science because science is something that you have to see. The scientific method simply says you must experiment make hypotheses on what might actually occur because of your experiment and then have a result of that experiment. You actually see it and then be able to repeat that over and over again. Well, we can't do that with creation. It'd be great if we could see creation, but we can't. But through other things, we can actually know that God exists. And how is that? It's the complexity of everything. You know, you have over 3 trillion cells in your body and they all are fed so they can stay alive. How are they fed? They're fed by blood vessels that circulate through your, through your circulatory system and bring oxygen and food to your cells. You think that happened by accident and chance? We have, over, we have 11 or more systems that all work in concert with each other. Circulatory, you guys can name the rest of them, nervous system. Uh, there's, there's 11 of them. Yes, there's just, and they all work together. How does that work? Does that happen by accident and chance? Of course it doesn't. Plus, we also know this, and this is what's fascinating. I'm reading a book right now by a fellow by the name, his name is Dr. Stephen Meyer. He was educated at Cambridge. He's a physicist. He's a biophysicist. The book is called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And it's, it's taken me a long time to read the book. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, I have to read about 20 pages and I have to stop because my brain's about to explode. <laughs> But theoretical physicists now have determined, and this is really, I'm going to read you something in a second that shows you what I'm talking about. They have determined that the universe had to have had a beginning 
in the beginning had to be under control. In other words, the Big Bang is nonsense. But some design was present at the beginning. And the scientists, the physicists, are coming to this conclusion. That's what's so fascinating about it. They're the ones that tried to shove everything come from nothing. You know, nothing made everything, right? That's, that's silly. It can't be true. Well, I'm going to read you this. This is a guy who's no longer with us. He passed away some years ago. His name was Robert Jastrow. He was at the Goddard Space Institute. He wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. That's a good thing for a physicist to write, mentioning God, right? But what he said there, he said, acknowledge that there is an end to the universe. And that, that hurt for him to acknowledge that. There was a beginning to the universe, and that hurt him to acknowledge that. What he said was, the implications of the fact that there's a beginning to the universe hurt him personally, made him uncomfortable. And so in a memorable conclusion to that book he wrote, God and the Astronomers, this is what he wrote, and this is really cool. Quote, the discovery of a definite cosmic beginning is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always accepted the word in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The development is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect back into time. And what they found is that they went back farther in time, all the way back to where there was a cause, uh, where there was an effect, excuse me, but no cause. They looked for the cause and they couldn't find it. That's what he's saying is unexpected. Now listen to this. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, and all physicists do that, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak of ignorance. As he pulls himself over the final rock, peaks over the top, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? What took you so long? Hi. Glad you're here. And that's just wonderful. So maybe he came to faith before he passed away. I hope he did. So the deal is everything in the universe made by God, is degrading. That's another thing that the scientists can't explain. Energy is never destroyed. It just changes form. So that's the first law of thermodynamics. The second law says everything is degrading. That's entropy. Entropy grows over time. That means things get more and more in chaos, right? Okay. So what do you say about that? So what? Well, what that means is if the universe is running down, it had to have a beginning. And it also has to have an end. So what we're saying is the universe isn't self-sustaining or it wouldn't be running down like it is. So it had to have a beginning. Someone had to start it. There had to have been a creation or creation out of nothing. And what does the Bible say? Genesis 1.1, it says God created. What's the word in Hebrew? Bara. What does that mean? Out of nothing. So when we look at the order of the universe, we observe plants and animals. When we investigate matter in detail, 
We define design. We see design in everything. Design is in everything. And it has to mean there's a God, obviously. And so scientists are finally coming to that conclusion. I think it's fantastic. So the law of design indicates that God is, just like Enoch said, God exists. The use of science can't prove God, but through the use of science, we have absolutely overwhelming evidence that he is there. He is the designer, engineer, and creator, sustainer of the universe. So man's reasoning can't prove God, but we can have faith. Now, with all of the many natural, scientific, and rational evidences of God, we have to acknowledge him as God, and that's the real stumbling block. People don't want to do that. It's still a matter of faith. You prove to them all day long that God exists, and they're going to go, yeah, but so what? Who cares? Right? I'm still my own man. I'll do what I want to do. Enoch was the first real man of walking by faith. He knew God existed. And what did he do? He pleased God and satisfied him. That's what the Bible said. So God took him. Second thing, Enoch sought God's reward. What does it say there in the same verse, verse 6? It says God is a rewarder of those who earnestly and digitally seek him. What does that mean? Well, Enoch was rewarded to the point that he didn't even die. He died when he was only like a third of the way through his life, 365 years. He probably would have lived more than 900 years. God took him. Some people would think that isn't much of a reward. We, we know it is. We know it's a reward. So it's not simply enough to believe that he exists. We have to also reward, be rewarded by God for walking with him pleasing him every single day. So Enoch did not believe God was merely a great impersonal cosmic force of some kind, like may the force be with you, you know, that sort of stuff, right? No. He believed in a new God in a personal and a loving and a living way. And for 300 years, Enoch was in fellowship with God, at least 300 years. Einstein once wrote, certainly there is a God. He was a Jew, by the way, if you didn't know that. Yes. Any man who doesn't believe in a cosmic force is a fool, Einstein said. But he could never know him. But we can. We know that's not true. We know we can know him and know him intimately. We can not only know God, praise him, obey him, and know he will respond mercifully and graciously to anyone who comes to him because of Jesus Christ. Right? So... Both Testaments of the Bible are filled with teachings that God not only can be found, but it is his great desire to be found. I'm going to read you two verses, one from Jeremiah. Uh, chapter 29, verse 13. It says, Then you will seek me, inquire for, and require me as a vital necessity, and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Then it says also in Luke 1.10, which we obviously we know this verse very well, 11.10, I'm sorry. It says, for everyone who asks and keeps on asking, receives. And he who seeks and keeps on seeking, finds. And to him who knocks and keeps on knocking, the door will be open. So we can find God. So the reward that God gives us for seeking him and following after him and walking with him is what? Salvation, right? Reconciliation. I've explained to the men at the ranch quite often, you can sum up the Bible's purpose 
in one word. That word is reconciliation. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden. We fell out of fellowship with God. What does Jesus do? Brings us right back into fellowship with God. Reconciles it. So Enoch is a type of the church because he believed in God, walked with God, and he was taken. And we're going to be taken too. You know, it's becoming real evident that this year is going to be really something. This could be the year, guys. This could be the year. Did you know that according to a Bible that was written in 1813, I don't know what the edition was, but it's one of the footnotes of the Bible, it actually numbered the years from creation. And if you add the number of years from 1813 until today, you find out that in 2024, the earth is exactly 6,000 years old. How about that? Exactly 6,000. That might be significant. <laughs> it very much could be. So what we say is Enoch also walked with God, pleased God. It says he was deemed satisfactory to God. Whoa. Well, that's a word that we kind of have trouble with. You know, you sit down to a meal and it's not all that great, but it's, it's okay. It tastes pretty good and everything. You're satisfied with that, right? That's not what this means. If God's satisfied, that means his wrath is gone. He's satisfied. He's content with you. How do you get that? Jesus, it's the only way. So Enoch said he believed that God existed, obviously, first step toward faith. Then he believed that God rewards those who trust in him. That's the first step of faith. Now to continue pleasing God, he wants to walk with him. And that's what we need to do. We walk with him. Walking with God is described, describing Enoch, which can be translated to be well-pleasing to God, Ephesians 5.2. We want to be well-pleasing to God. That's what Enoch was doing. So when we get to heaven, we will walk with him forever, no question. In order to walk with God, we must be reconciled to him, and that's what we talked about, reconciliation. In order to do that, we must deal with our sin. How do we do that? We can't do anything. God did it all, except, except what Jesus did. So in order... To accept what Christ did for us, we have to do the first thing that the most difficult thing all of us have to do, and that is submit. Sorry, it's a terrible word. Submittance, but you got to do it. You got to say, like Mac was talking about this morning, you've got to get rid of that self indulgence, that self satisfaction, that self orientation we all have, and put it away. So, number four, Enoch preached for God. Well, we didn't get that out of Hebrews. Where do we get that with Enoch preached for God? Does anybody know? Jude. That's right. And as I love the way I always refer to Jude, it's in Jude chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah. Huh? There is no other chapter except chapter 1 in Jude. So it says in verses 14 and 15, it says, It was of these people, moreover, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied when he said, Behold, the Lord comes with his myriad of holy ones, ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the unholy ones, the impious ones, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the severe, abusive, soul-jarring things which ungodly sinners have spoken against God. Boy, is that described today? Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. It describes today to a T. So Enoch was preaching, obviously. Jude said so. We only get this characteristic 
of Enoch from Jude. It's nowhere else in the Bible. Enoch's purpose was to be faithful. He didn't know that he was affected. Now, this is a great lesson. I wish Brian was here because he needed to hear this. <laughs> Enoch had a great message, and he had a great message that he just got, we just got to hearing about. Get rid of the ungodly people, right? Take them out of your life. Get, turn them if you can, but get away from them. But he was taken. So what happened? He didn't get to see the results of what he preached. If anyone lived anywhere near Enoch, they knew where he stood. Because he walked with God. He, he gave evidence of God everywhere he went. He had to. Had, I don't know. It had to have been, I think, giving him the Holy Spirit because he was faithful. We, but it doesn't say that. We'll have to ask him someday. Hey, Dan. How'd you do that? <laughs> but anyway, the idea is here, no one had any excuse for not believing in God. We knew, Everybody knew there was a God. But they chose not to. They chose to ignore Enoch, right? But he was, he was raptured, so he didn't see any long-term effect of how he preached. So that's what I'm saying. Each time Enoch preached, he never knew exactly where that would go. Well, that's kind of where we run into at the ranch. We have these guys come and go all the time. We don't know whether they're actually hearing us or not. But we actually have to say, did we do our job? And the answer is, yes, we did. We gave them the scripture. We read scripture every day with them. We taught them things that they needed to know. And then they left. God, take over. I can't do anything else. That's all I can do, right? And that's really what Enoch did. He preached the truth because he always wanted to please God. So what does that tell us? What do you need to do? Preach the word. Absolutely. And the last thing, God entered into God's presence. And that's in verse 5. It says, because of faith, Enoch was caught up, transferred to heaven, so that he did not have a glimpse of death. Now, we may not, anybody else in this room, all of us in this room may not have a glimpse of death either if the rapture happens soon, but we don't know that. We could die, but we'll still get raptured. That's what happens. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And we find out exactly what it says. It says, Now, also, we would not have you ignorant, brethren. So he wants to tell you something that you may not know about those who fall asleep in death. That you may not grieve for them as the rest who have no hope beyond the grave, the ones who have died without Jesus, in other words. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God will also bring with him through Jesus those who have fallen asleep in death. For this we declare to you by the Lord's own word. In other words, he heard this. This is Paul saying he heard this from God. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, okay, shall in no way precede him or proceed into his presence or have any advantage at all over those who have previously fallen asleep in death. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud cry of summons, in the shout of an archangel, and with the blast of the trumpet of God. And those who have departed this life in Christ, the dead, will rise first. Then we, the still living, who remain on the earth, shall simultaneously be caught up along with the resurrected dead in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so also we always will be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort and encourage one another with these words. Now, you'll hear people say, oh, 
well, a rapture is not in the Bible. The word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it isn't. Well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible either. No, it's not. The word Bible is not in the Bible. But the word Elohim is in the Bible. That means plural God, Trinity. And the word harpazo in Greek is in the Bible. I just read it right there. It says, we'll be caught up. And that's exactly what happened to Enoch. He was caught up. That's in the Bible. That means rapture. So it's there. So Enoch, after 300 years of believing and walking and preaching, was caught up with the Lord in a unique way. God's never done that with anybody else, right? No, he did it with one other person, Elijah. Except he went up to heaven. We, we know he went up in a chariot. That's kind of cool. We don't know how Enoch went up. He said he just, God took him. <laughs> Come up here. So by faith, Enoch was translated, walked into heaven. Why at age 365? We don't know. Maybe he needed to stick around for a long time to meet, to greet, or to uh, educate some of those people before the flood. Maybe he had some success in doing that. But then God said, nobody else is going to listen to you anymore. So that's when he took it. Maybe that's the way it worked. We'll have to ask him something. We have to ask God that. No? Uh, well, yeah. Absolutely. He could be. I, I, my opinion, it would be Elijah and Nina because neither one of them died, but the two witnesses will die. And so that's what makes me think it's those two, but we don't know that. So like I said, it could be Jim and Carl. <laughs> anyway, they'll do a good job, <laughs> but Enoch and Elijah do a better job. Yes, sir. Based on what you've shared with us in the last few months, there is absolutely nothing more important than each one of us sharing the gospel. Precisely correct. There is no. But you can have eternal impact. There's nothing more important than sharing the gospel because you can have eternal impact on someone's life. Eternal impact on their life by sharing the gospel with them. And it's if eternal. they choose to reject you, oh, it's not your. Reject. Not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. That's, that's exactly that's right. Not, that's not our job. Our job is to share. Our job is to share the gospel. That's correct. And if they reject it, what did Jesus say to his disciples? Go into a town, tell them what you need to hear, need them to hear. They don't like it. Wipe the dust off your feet and go. So Enoch is a fabulous picture of believers who will be taken up directly into heaven, and that's us, when Jesus returns for his bride. Now, that's not the second coming. That's the coming of Jesus in the air. He comes to the earth at the second coming, and we come back with him. So we could just say, Revelation twenty two twenty. Even so, come Lord Jesus, right? Yes, ma'am. Um, if there were any that were believers, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think Enoch probably preached to a bunch of people, and they probably died because, see, remember, he was 365. He was 60 when Methuselah was born. Methuselah died 969 years later. So he was alive for those 300 years while Methuselah was alive. Then he was gone. So maybe in that period of time, some people heard the word, believed, died, and obviously you're going to be in heaven like the other Old Testament saints. Right, where the eight people, that's right. So yeah, so some of those people probably did believe. But the, the rest of those 600 years, nobody did. Absolutely nobody. I wonder about, where did, where did, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth find women that believe, too, I wonder. I just wonder about that. They don't talk about that. They don't talk about uh, Noah's wife, either. We have to ask about that. You know, were they 
on the fence and they got to go anyway. I don't know. You know we just need to find out. Yeah. I don't know. Could have been. Could have been. Yes, ma'am. They're not 100,000 years old. Okay. When when you test something, okay, this you, you probably don't know this, and probably most people in this room don't know this. If something has been alive before, okay, they do a carbon test to check for carbon 14, carbon 12, and that what used to be alive. Carbon degrades at every 5,760 years, and so you can actually calculate the age of something by how much of carbon 14 is still left in whatever you find. Okay, that's a, it's a living like a bone or tissue or something like that. You can test their age. Don't do that with inorganic matter, like rocks or boxes or anything else. They test it. They test those things, and there's about, there's about 20 different tests they can run. Okay, They will get results from all 20 of those tests. Three or four of those tests align with the Bible. The rest of those tests give you these nutty years. This is 2 billion years old, or this is 400,000 years old, or this is 250 million years old, or whatever. They choose one of those other tests, and that's what they publish. They don't go to the ones that give them the short period of time. What I'm saying is the tests are reliable. They just use the wrong tests or publish the wrong results to make people believe in evolution. So that box is not 100,000 years old. Because <laughs> they, they tell you. They, you've got, they document the test that they run. They pick the right one. This, this fits our paradigm. This fits, fits our explanations of other things. So therefore, that's the one we're going to use. And then what they do, paleontologists go to the geologists to find out how old the rocks are to determine the age of the fossils. And the geologists go to the paleontologists to find out how old the fossils are, to find out how old the rocks are. So it's a circular reasoning thing. They're both in error, so they keep on perpetuating the lies. And didn't the flood cause some of that error because of the pressure of all the water on all the rocks? If, you know, if, they, don't, if they don't believe in the flood, they don't take it into Well, there's interesting things you can do that. There's, there's helium that's captured in rocks. And helium in anything escapes very quickly because helium is just as a valence of two. It could get out through any cracks, right? They, they take the granite of your granite tops at your, at your house and they can test the age of that granite. They might find helium in that granite. If that's the case, that rock's not old. It's young. It only dates back to the flood. There's all kinds of things like that that you read that you can read about. The rocks really are as old as they say they are. They are. They can be tested and proven that they're actually quite young. They were, they were actually laid down in the flood. That's only 4,000 years ago, 4,400 years ago. So I don't believe this stuff, guys. That's one of the subjects I'm going to bring up when we have the prophecy conference here at the end of next month. We're going to talk about that. We'll talk about the fact you need to be aware of what people are lying to you about because they're lying to you every single time you hear anything. No, God doesn't lie. But people do. They lie constantly. Deception is everywhere. It is. If you believe the Bible, you should believe the Bible because it's God's truth. But other people go, I don't believe that. Well, that's all right. You don't have to. It's your choice. It's fine. We're right and you're not. It's okay. You'll find out someday. You know, I'm not going to persecute you because you say you don't believe in the God. Bad move. Yes, ma'am. What? Oh, somebody over here? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. 
Yes. So we know some did. Hopefully it's a bunch, but we don't know that. But yeah. Right. There were some. Yeah. Right. It's good. That was Isaiah 57. Okay. Anyone else? Any other comments about this? I know there's a lot of stuff, a lot of deep stuff here, but it's all biblical. Okay. Okay. That's pretty good. Lord God, we praise you. We thank you for uh, giving us the ability and the desire to search things out. We want to be Bereans, number one. We want to find out whether what we hear from the scriptures is really from you. And we can do that very easily because we have the book. We also want to be able to search out what the world is telling us. And the world is telling us so many strange things. It's just you have to look and find out. And when you do, you find out that they lie, they lie, they lie. Why? Because they're seeking for power, they're seeking for money, they're seeking for influence. That's all selfishness, that's all sin, and it's something we need to stay away from and avoid. So Lord, we praise you for giving us the, the knowledge to know that there is truth out there, and it's truth is you. Truth is what you've told us in your word, and what we can determine from that. And so we praise you, Lord, and thank you for that. You're a wonderful God, you're a loving God, and you're also a wrathful God. So, Lord, help us to continue doing what we need to do, what we want to do to be satisfied by you, to uh, please you in whatever we do, and we be able to walk with you in the proper way and worship you in the proper way. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.